Today's destination is El Portal, California. El Portal is a small but historically significant community nestled in the rugged terrain of the western border of Yosemite National Park. Its story began in the late 19th century when the region was a focal point of the California Gold Rush. The town's name, El Portal, is Spanish for the gateway, an apt descriptor given its proximity to the iconic Yosemite Valley. Today, the area is known as Yosemite's Western Gateway. The city stands as a cherished piece of California heritage, welcoming visitors with its scenic beauty and echoes of a bygone era. The town's historical significance, combined with its breathtaking surroundings, continues to draw nature enthusiasts, history buffs, and international travelers. The summer is the busiest time in El Portal, as many people from all over the world visit the Yosemite Valley. In the winter, however, it can feel like a ghost town when the temperatures drop and the tourists have to battle the mountain snow. But in 1999, against the backdrop of this breathtaking beauty, the ugliest side of human nature made its presence known. Yen's son had not heard from his wife, Carol, since Sunday night, which was Valentine's Day, February 14, 1999. She called him from the Cedar Lodge in El Portal and said the girls had enjoyed Yosemite that day. Traveling from their home in Eureka, 42-year-old Carol Sund had taken their 15-year-old daughter, Juliana, who went by Julie, and Julie's 16-year-old friend, Sylvina Peloso, to see Yosemite. Sylvina had been in California for two and a half months, visiting from Argentina. Carol was actually a friend of Sylvina's mom, Raquel. The two mothers met years prior when Carol was in Argentina on a student foreign exchange program. Their daughters had been friends since early childhood and spent time together in each other's countries. Carol's three other children, two boys and a girl who were all younger than Julie, stayed at home with Jens during the Yosemite trip. Jens and Carol made plans for the four of them to meet up at the San Francisco airport on Tuesday, February 16th, after their trip to Yosemite. From there, they were going to fly to Arizona so Carol and the two girls could tour the Grand Canyon while Jens did some work. His flight from Eureka was delayed, so when Jens got to the San Francisco airport and Carol and the two girls weren't there, he assumed they'd taken their scheduled flight to Arizona. When Jens arrived in Arizona the next day, he tried to contact Carol again and failed. He also left messages with her family and didn't hear back. Jens then called the rental car company and found out Carol did not return the red Pontiac Grand Prix she had rented to drive to Yosemite. He knew then that something was wrong because Carol was so punctual and organized. That day, Wednesday the 17th, Jens called police and local law enforcement including Yosemite Park Rangers, began looking for them. Jens and his brother-in-law then drove to Yosemite to help with the search. The Cedar Lodge staff told police that they cleaned the room that Carol and the girls had stayed in on Tuesday morning and saw nothing suspicious. Checkout had apparently been done in advance, and the keys were left on the room desk. Staff also said that on Monday night, February 15th, the girls had checked out videos to watch. Monday night was the last anyone had seen of Carol, Julie, and Sylvina. Mariposa County Sheriff's Department released a description of the Red Pontiac Grand Prix and Carol and the two girls asking for the public's help in finding them. 
The sheriff's office reinforced the idea that there was no evidence of foul play. Within a week after Carol and the two girls were last seen, Carol's son's family offered a $200,000 reward for information leading to their safe return. Kathleen Sullivan and Robert Selna of the San Francisco Examiner reviewed the route that Carol and the two girls had traveled. On Friday, February 12th, they flew from the small Northern California port city of Eureka to San Francisco and then drove 90 minutes east to Stockton, where they spent the night in a hotel. On Saturday, February 13th, they went to a cheerleading competition at the University of the Pacific, then drove to Merced, where they spent Saturday night in a Ramada Inn. On Sunday, the 14th, Valentine's Day, the three drove to El Portal and checked into the Cedar Lodge, just a few miles outside Yosemite National Park. The next day was the last day anyone heard from them. Investigators believe something may have happened when they were returning home from El Portal, and searchers thought that the icy road conditions may have caused the car to slide off the road. For four weeks, police, family, and volunteers searched the area in and near Yosemite National Park by helicopter, foot, and skis. And, you know, Kathy, I actually saw an interview that was done with Carol's parents, and her dad said that he had actually gotten into his car, gotten everything he could think of might be needed, rope, hatchets, anything that you might need to do to get through the forest to go out and try and find them too. A multi-agency task force was formed and detectives and search dogs canvassed the area as well. Federal agents, specifically from the FBI, were involved because Yosemite is federal land. Unfortunately, nothing was found. Police questioned workers at the Cedar Lodge where Carol and the two girls stayed but no information was forthcoming. On Friday, February 19th, four days after Carol, Julie, and Sylvina were last seen, a Modesto High School student found Carol's son's wallet insert in the middle of a busy intersection in the city of Modesto. Kathy Modesto, as you know, is in Central California. It's about 100 miles west of the Cedar Lodge. When they talk about the wallet insert, I'm assuming it's the plastic part of a wallet where you put credit cards and photographs and things like that and not the wallet itself. The wallet insert contained her identification and credit cards. After finding the wallet, the disappearance of Carol and the two girls was considered to be a possible kidnapping, and the FBI located their command post in Modesto. It turned out that Carol's son was a member of a wealthy local family, the Carringtons, who had been involved in Sonoma real estate since 1882. Carol and her husband Jens operated a commercial real estate management company in Eureka, where they had lived for over 20 years. But if money was a motivator, no ransom demands had yet been made. Carol's husband Jens, at this point, increased the reward to $250,000 for information leading to the group's safe return. Raquel Peloso, Sylvina's mother, flew to California two days later. She was initially concerned Carol and the two girls had been in an accident, but now she feared something else may have occurred. According to an article in the Fresno Bee by Cindy Fontana, Kimmy Young, and Matthew Creamer, on March 5th, two and a half weeks after the trio's disappearance, Billy Joe Strange, age 39, who worked at the Cedar Lodge restaurant, was arrested on parole violations. 
Billy Joe was a night janitor at the restaurant that was part of the Cedar Lodge property. The journalist reported that local residents knew that Strange had been interviewed a number of times and reportedly told people that he had failed a lie detector test, but otherwise very few details were known. Shortly after Strange's arrest, Daryl Stevens, age 55, was taken into custody, also on charges not related to the missing trio. Stevens was Strange's roommate in El Portal. He, too, was arrested on a parole violation, and authorities would not say if there was a connection to the disappearance of Carol, Julie, and Sylvina. In the days following the discovery of the wallet, someone, on two occasions, attempted to access Carol's son's Wells Fargo bank account by calling the bank directly and pretending to be her. The caller knew Carol's personal information, and the FBI was trying to track this person down. Kath, I read somewhere in one of the newspaper articles that it was not as easy as one would think. They said there were 800,000 calls that they were trying to go through because it was an 800 number. Months later, motorcycles were purchased using a fake identity with Carol's name on it. On March 17th, this is just over a month after Carol and the two girls were last seen, Michael Larwick had a crazy and inexplicable encounter with police. Modesto police officer Steve Silva attempted to pull him over for expired license plates, but when his sirens went on, Larwick sped away at 80 miles an hour. Officer Silva's pursuit ended when Larwick collided with a van in the middle of the intersection, but Larwick was able to get out of his car and he fired five shots at Officer Silva's vehicle. The officer returned fire while crouching behind his patrol car door. One of Larwick's bullets went through the door and hit Officer Silva making him unable to chase Larwick as he escaped on foot. As Larwick ran away, he jumped over a fence into a residential neighborhood and forced his way into a house, engaging in a 14-hour standoff with the police. After the Modesto Police Department SWAT team shot tear gas into the house, he finally surrendered. And Kath, according to columnist Diane Nelson of the Modesto Bee, it took 30 canisters of tear gas before Larwick surrendered. In this column, she asks the question, why would anybody run from the police in such an overreactive and dramatic way? Larwick had a long criminal history, which included felony kidnapping with forced oral copulation, manslaughter, firearms, and drug offenses. On March 18, 1999, the day after Larwick's inexplicable chase and standoff, a grisly discovery was made. According to an article in the Lompoc Record by Christine Hanley, a hiker spotted the missing rental car in Long Barn, about 65 miles east of Modesto. It was spotted in a heavily wooded forest, 75 yards off the highway, and appeared to have been intentionally torched. Two burned bodies were found in the trunk. Within days, Dental records and DNA identified them as Sylvina Peloso and Carol's son. Julie, Carol's daughter, was still missing. Film was developed from a camera found near the two bodies. Investigators were hoping that the last photographs would provide a lead. However, the last photos were taken in Yosemite, not Tuolumne County, where the bodies were found. Naturally, law enforcement officers believe that this was the explanation 
for Larwick's inexplicable behavior the day prior. As it turned out, Larwick's half-brother, 32-year-old Eugene Dykes, had been arrested on March 5th. This was the same day that Billy Joe Strange, the Cedar Lodge janitor, was also arrested. So on March 5th, Dykes was arrested on a parole violation after a two and a half hour standoff at his home with police. So standoffs must run in the family. I was just thinking the same thing. (laughs) For real. Anyway, Eugene had spent most of his life in prison on charges of unlawful sex. Now, this was not explained. That's what all the newspapers said. Thank goodness. Exactly. I sometimes don't want to know. Exactly. So unlawful sex, drug possession, and unlawful possession of a firearm. At this point, which was two weeks after Dykes had been arrested and after his half-brother Larwick was arrested, FBI agents and local law enforcement were focused on the theory that the murders were committed by local methamphetamine dealers and users who had sex-related convictions. After talking to Dykes in jail, their focus narrowed to him and Larwick specifically. Then, on March 24th, Six days after the discovery of Carol and Sylvina's bodies, a letter arrived at the FBI office. It was postmarked March 15th. This was just three days before Larwick's shootout with Officer Silva, but because of a mail error, it did not arrive for nine days. Inside the envelope was a crude diagram showing where Julie's body could be found. On the paper was written, We had fun with this one. With the help of a cadaver dog, Julie's body was found near Lake Don Pedro off Highway 120 west of Yosemite, just as the diagram indicated. This location was just 40 miles from the burned-out vehicle where they found Carol and Sylvina's bodies. Some of the evidence from Julie's body was sent to the FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia. According to an article in the Sacramento Bee by Cynthia Hubert, Eugene Dykes made incriminating statements about being involved in the kidnapping and murders. He told agents that they should search his Jeep Wagoneer, his half-brother Larwick's Corvette, and a pickup truck belonging to a friend. It was reported that the FBI lab found tiny fibers on or near Julie's body that were microscopically consistent to those found in the vehicles that Dykes suggested they search. The fibers were also found on one of his jackets. But Dykes kept changing his story with law enforcement. He also never told law enforcement where their bodies could be found. In the Lompoc Record article by Christine Hanley, she reported that Dykes also said that his half-brother Larwick gave him some personal property, including checks with Carol's name on them and a ring that belonged to Julie. Dykes said he was asked to create fake IDs with Carol's son's name. Law enforcement was not officially naming Dykes or Larwick as suspects, but their arrests were widely reported as was the fact that law enforcement believed multiple people were involved in the murders. They were focusing on the theory that local methamphetamine users and dealers were involved in the kidnapping and murders of Carol, Julie, and Sylvina. Law enforcement continued to build a case against Larwick and Dykes, but had not ruled out other suspects. On April 25, 1999, five weeks after her body was discovered, Sylvina was flown home to Argentina. You know what was interesting about this, Kathy, is that one of California's two U.S. senators, Dianne Feinstein, offered military transport to Argentina for the family, which the family declined. 
However, Alex Spanos, who at the time was the owner of the San Diego Chargers, offered a jet when he found out that the body was being sent on a commercial plane. And the Peloso family said yes. Kath, I read the same thing. And I think that Senator Feinstein had offered well in advance of the Peloso family actually knowing when their daughter's body was going to be released. Oh, really? That was my impression. Okay, I didn't get that impression. That's interesting. And so I think like when Spanos offered, it was closer in time. And they're like, yes, we got to go. I don't think it was a slight. No, I don't either. Honestly, my thought was, if you've ever been on military transport, that is not a nice way to fly. Oh, at all. Oh, interesting. Okay. And so having it on a commercial or military plane, it's not as easy, right? And so having a private plane, it's a smaller, more intimate setting. Oh, definitely. And it's easier to grieve. And by the way, the Carringtons, Carol's son's parents, flew with them on the jet back to Argentina. Well, and in addition to this, Kath, a trust fund was established for the Peloso family to help them defray the costs of their stay in Modesto while the FBI investigated Sylvina's disappearance. So the Central California community, it's larger now, obviously, it's been 24 years, but it really is still small town California, especially Mm -hmm. back then. And the community rallied around the Carrington family, the Sun family and the Peloso family. Carol and Julie Sun's funeral was held on April 11th, 1999 at Sacred Heart Church in Eureka. Over a thousand mourners attended and during the service, they were remembered with alternating laughter and sobs. Mother and daughter were buried next to each other. Five months after the murders of Carol and Julie Sund and Sylvina Peloso, investigators continued to put together a timeline and collect evidence. Then, Yosemite became the focus of another investigation. 26-year-old Joey Armstrong was an employee of Yosemite National Park who lived in Foresta, which is a small community within Yosemite that was dotted with occasional homes and cabins. She helped run an educational program for children and was an avid nature lover. On Wednesday, July 21st, 1999, Joey was packing for a trip to join friends in San Francisco. According to an affidavit for a federal search warrant, Sunny Montague, who was married to Joey's boss, had a conversation with her at about 6.30 p.m. She told Sunny that she would come to their home to deliver files to Sunny's husband before leaving on her trip. Sunny became concerned when Joey did not arrive within the hour and walked to her small house. It was about a five-minute walk, and Sunny arrived at 7.30 p.m. She saw Joey's car. The house was open and the stereo was playing music, but she was nowhere to be seen. Early the following day, which is Thursday, Joey was reported missing by friends when she failed to meet up with them in San Francisco as planned. When Joey's Yosemite friends went to check on her, they found signs of a struggle in her cabin. Yosemite Park Rangers immediately began looking for her. That same day, at around 1.30 p.m., her body was discovered partially submerged in a nearby stream not far from her cabin. She had been decapitated and her head was missing. Park Rangers immediately called in support for the crime scene and began interviewing everyone who lived in this very rustic and remote area contained within the park. An employee of the Yosemite National Park Fire Department recalled seeing a blue International Scout with a white top in the area of Joey's residence at approximately 7.30 p.m. Wednesday night. Another park employee picked up a hitchhiker Wednesday night on Highway 140 just outside the park between 10 and 10.30 p.m. He drove the man, whose name he did not know, to the Cedar Lodge where the hitchhiker said he lived. 
And Kath, he told law enforcement that when he picked up this hitchhiker, the guy was standing next to a light blue International Scout. And he told the driver who picked him up that his car had broken down and that he had gone into Yosemite Park to buy food. I feel like I know somebody who owned a blue International Scout with a white top. I can't think of who it was. That would be my husband. Yes, it would. (laughs) He actually sold that car not too long ago. And my third son practically cried. Everybody was heartbroken. Why didn't he buy it from your husband? He didn't even say he was selling it. Like, I knew he was selling it, but we didn't bother informing the kids. So when it was gone, they were like, what happened? Because honestly, scouts are so freaking cool. I was actually shocked he sold it. Yeah, internationals in general are super cool. Three hours after they found Joey Armstrong's body, two park rangers were dispatched to investigate a sighting of an international scout matching the description. The sighting was outside the park, so the Mariposa County Sheriff's Office was asked to assist. Two park rangers and a couple deputies located 36-year-old Carrie Stainer, a handyman who worked at Cedar Lodge. He was sitting nude on the edge of a river outside the park, as one would do. Exactly. Okay, what was funny, Kath, is that both park rangers were female. Oh, my God. (laughs) You know, they were totally like rock, paper, scissors for who has to cuff them. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway. Carrie Stainer had marijuana on him, which was not hidden, obviously, Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) and which they confiscated. He admitted that he owned the 1979 International Scout, and he gave them permission to search it. He also had a backpack with him, which he told them they could not search. Because the rangers were looking for a severed head, they explained that they would get a search warrant for the backpack. Then Stainer offered to allow the backpack to be searched. But Kath, at that point, the rangers and deputies were like, nope, because they knew that if they found any incriminating evidence like a head, that they would then be accused of pressuring him or that the search was not actually voluntary because he had initially declined to give them permission. And if down the line, some judge found out that this was an unlawful search, anything in the backpack they found would be excluded from evidence. For any of you who pay attention to what Kathy and Kim Kardashian teach you, (laughs) we're baby bar graduates. (laughs) Any evidence unlawfully seized is excluded as fruit Fruit of of the the poisonous poisonous tree. (laughs) (laughs) So Stainer was taken to the ranger station where he was interviewed, and I assume they let him put on clothes first. (laughs) Let him or forced him to? I don't think they gave him a choice on that one. He was put in a room and interviewed by rangers. He denied being in Foresta at any time on the prior evening. He told the ranger that he had been swimming in the valley during the day, but returned home to El Portal and the Cedar Lodge to shower and change before he came back into Yosemite Park to eat dinner. This struck the ranger as odd because... The highway that he was using to come to and from the park was Highway 140. And at the time, there was construction on it. So all the locals knew that if you use the 140 near the park, there was going to be a bunch of delays. She thought this is odd because Stainer voluntarily got on the 140 four times that day. During the interview with Stainer, photos were taken of the tires of his vehicle. One of the park rangers, who was a professional tracker, examined the ground at Joey's cabin as well as the location where her body was found. He saw tire tracks near both locations. He also noticed that the scout had two different sets of tires on it, and when the tracker compared the tires to the photographs, 
He believed they were consistent. The ranger interviewing Stainer was unaware that the scout's tire tracks matched the murder scene, so when the interview was over, Stainer simply left the station. The next day, the rangers went to the Cedar Lodge, where Stainer worked as a handyman, looking for him for another interview. But he was not there. He did not appear for work that day at all, and his manager said it was the first time in a year and a half that he had just not shown up for work. The International Scout was also gone. If you're Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, <laughs> despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hey, Kathy and I, and you enjoy a nice glass of wine, but you're not a connoisseur, let Dracaena Wines be your guide. Dracaena is the creation of Lori and Michael, a husband and wife team who both have science backgrounds. Michael is a food chemist and Lori was a microbiologist. So these two nerds did the hard work for us. <laughs> and we mean that in the most complimentary way. Most complimentary way. <laughs> My husband and I actually met Lori in Paso Robles. She was phenomenal and introduced me to her Cabernet Franc, which is to die for. They actually specialize in Cabernet Franc, Rosé, and Chenin Blanc. And for the last 10 years, every vintage of their wines has received a 90 plus rating from wine enthusiasts. That's no surprise. It's so good. The name Dracaena is the genus name of the Draco tree, and Draco was the name of their beloved Weimariner. So all you dog lovers out there got to buy their wine. <laughs> because they donate to dog charities. And you will get 10% off if you use the code KILLER. And they have a wine club that's called the Chalk Club, which I love. That's named after their dog named Vegas. Right. Their second Weimariner. Exactly. And that's because in Vegas, if you're betting chalk, you are betting on all the favorites. And they are taking the gamble that once you taste their wine, like Kathy with a C did, they will become one of your favorites. Not only are their wines delicious, they're reasonably priced. So to make a purchase, go to DracinaWines.com. D-R-A-C-A-E-N-A Wines.com. And on this site, there's a link to their weekly podcast and weekly blog posts. And you'll also find links to all of their socials. Hey, who needs to learn to drive? Seriously, who needs to learn to drive? <laughs> or which friend of yours needs to learn to drive so they'll stop using you as their personal rideshare service? But without the tips. <laughs> If you live in the Southern California counties of Los Angeles and Orange, Premium Driving School can help. Their certified instructors will help you pass your permit test, learn how to drive, and get your license. 
and you'll be learning in a late model Mini Cooper. So that's fun. That's the best part. Premium Driving School offers a number of packages, including behind-the-wheel driving lesson packages for teens and adults and refresher driving skills lessons for mature and senior drivers. Maybe I should have Dick and Laura go there. (laughs) Those are Kathy's parents, and I think you're actually right. (laughs) They could use it. (laughs) Lessons are available seven days a week and are based on each person's individual skill and ability level. Premium Driving School is here to help you learn how to drive and become a confident and safe driver, and it has a five-star Google rating. For more information, go to their website, learntodrivetoday.com. Learn, the number two, drivetoday.com. And with the code KILLERD, they'll give you a 10% discount on your lessons. On Friday, July 23rd, this is two days after Joey was murdered, A member of the Sacramento Evidence Response Team found Joey's severed head. It was underwater, approximately 40 feet from where her torso was found. There were defensive wounds on her body. An APB was put out for Carrie Stainer, and his picture was published in TV news reports. The next day, Stainer was located at the Laguna del Sol Nudist Park in Wilton, California, about 150 miles from El Portal. He sure likes to be naked. Yes, he does. Apparently, one of the park's residents recognized him and called the FBI. Agent Jeff Reinick was sent to the nudist park to bring Stainer in for a second interview. Stainer was told he was not under arrest and that he was free to leave, but they wished to speak with him as a potential witness. Stainer agreed to voluntarily accompany Agent Reinick to FBI offices in Sacramento, and Stainer drove together with him in Reinick's car. The drive was only about 15 miles, which normally would have taken about 45 minutes with the windy roads around there, but because of road construction, it took approximately 90 minutes. During the 90-minute drive to the station, Agent Reinick and Stainer developed a friendship of sorts. They spoke of Stainer's love for Yosemite, and Agent Reinick's wife actually loved Yosemite as well, so they had a lot of conversation about that. Agent Reinick also talked about his work hunting criminals who hurt children. Reinick knew Stainer was a witness, but did not know many other details of his potential involvement with Joey Armstrong's murder. But he was aware that Stainer had experienced a traumatic episode in his childhood. When Stainer was 11 years old, his family suffered a devastating loss. In 1972, When his younger brother, Stephen, was seven years old, he was abducted. Stephen was held for seven years by a pedophile named Kenneth Parnell. Parnell changed Stephen's name, enrolled him in schools, and pretended to be his father. And Kath, what was so sad about this? Of course, I have to go look up Stephen Stainer's situation. And he was on the way home from school when Parnell and one of his probably pedo friends pull up and they tell Stephen that his parents no longer want him. They're at an intersection, which I think there was a gas station, but I'm not 100% sure, but there was a public payphone there. So he gets on the phone and he's pretending to talk to Stephen's parents, convincing this kid that his parents didn't want them. So he gets in the car. After seven years, when Parnell returned home one day with a five-year-old boy named Timothy, who, by the way, Parnell was able to kidnap by paying a high school boy to help him out. I just can't even imagine that. And imagine being that high school boy and having that weigh on your conscience. Imagine a high school boy saying, sure, I'll accept money for helping you kidnap a kid. I understand that. Like the whole thing is... It's horrible. Devastating. 
Anyway, Stephen knew that he had to act to save Timothy from the trauma he knew he was going to experience. While Parnell the pedo was at work, Stephen took Timothy and hitchhiked 40 miles to a police station in the nearest town. And Kath, I'm sure you know the story, like he got to the police station and he says, I know my first name is Stephen. Right. I can't remember what they renamed him. It doesn't matter. But he remembered his actual name. And so, of course, everything was broken open. Kath, when Stephen was in this police station, he learned that he was only 200 miles from his home. This whole thing is so devastating. It's unbelievable. Stephen was hailed as a hero for saving Timothy and Parnell was arrested. Stephen went on to get married and have two children, but tragically died in a motorcycle accident at the age of 24. And here's what's great about this story. The little boy, Timothy, grew up to become an L.A. County Sheriff's deputy. And like Stephen Stainer, he gave lectures to children about his experience and the dangers of kidnapping. Unfortunately, also like Stephen, Timothy died prematurely at the age of 35 after suffering a pulmonary embolism. He, too, left behind a wife and two young children. On the drive to Sacramento, Stainer shared the emotional impact of Stephen's kidnapping with Agent Reinick. Reinick had asked Stainer about his brother because Reinick worked with abducted children and wanted to know what law enforcement could do to be better for the families. They also talked about closure when something like the loss of a brother happens. Upon arriving at the FBI offices, Stainer was handed off to another agent who told him he was free to leave and if he stayed to speak with them, he had to be read his Miranda rights. Stainer agreed to speak, affirmatively waived his rights, and asked if he could speak with Agent Reinick. Stainer told Reinick that he could provide the closure they had previously talked about. He then told Agent Reinick he murdered Joey Armstrong and provided information that could only be corroborated by the killer. Then, in a shocking twist, he also admitted to the murders of Carol Sund, Julie Sund, and Sylvina Peloso. Then Stainer tried to add conditions to this conversation they were having. Kath, in a very roundabout way, he basically told the agent that he would talk if he were given child porn. And it was something like, you know, videos of little girls. For sure there's something in your evidence room somewhere in the building that you can bring me. Which is so random. And disgusting. Well, that too. Agent Reinick said he would ask his superiors, but knew it would not happen any way, anyhow, anywhere, anytime. Agent Reinick ordered pizza and then invited his partner, Agent John Bowles, into the room. Stainer said he had no objection to Bowles being in there with them. They ate pizza and eventually Stainer gave a detailed confession, providing knowledge of the crimes not known outside of law enforcement. This included a description of items taken from Carol and the two girls' motel room and the condition of Julie's body. Stainer also admitted to being the author of the letter that was mailed to the Modesto FBI office with a diagram of where to find Julie. In the confession tapes, Stainer admitted that on February 14, 1999, Valentine's Day, he initially stalked four young girls staying at Cedar Lodge, the same motel where Carol and the two girls were staying. But he backed off when he saw that they were accompanied by a man. The next night, Stainer zeroed in on Carol's son and the two girls after spying on them through their window at the lodge. Now, Kath, their room was in a section of the lodge 
that was far away from the lobby in the restaurant. So, you know, they were kind of off the beaten path where they were staying. And because it was winter, there weren't a lot of people staying there. According to the confession tape, Carol's son was initially leery of Stainer when he knocked on her door and would only talk to him through the window. He said he needed to come in and fix something inside the bathroom, and she only let him in after he said he'd get the manager. And Kath, my assumption is, is that the reason she did it at that point is that she was thinking, oh, well, if he's up to no good, he's not going to go get the manager. So I'm sure he's fine. I assume the same thing. And, you know, Kathy and I both had the conversation of, well, we would do this differently or we would do that differently or blah, blah, blah. But we weren't there. We weren't them. And they did everything they knew to do. So you can't say they should have done it this way. Right. If they did X, then Y would not have happened or Z would have happened. We just won't do that. Yeah. Monday morning quarterbacking is not helping the situation. Stainer went into their bathroom and pretended to work on a fan while Carol read a book and Julie and Sylvina watched Jerry Maguire. He then came out of the bathroom with a gun in his hand. He told them he was a desperate man. And then he bound and gagged Carol and the two girls with duct tape and put the girls in the bathroom. He first strangled Carol with a three-foot piece of rope, taking approximately five minutes to do so. He then put Carol in the trunk of their rental car. Stainer then sexually assaulted Julie and Sylvina, but became irritated by Sylvina's sobbing. Because of that, he led her into the bathroom and strangled her as well. Julie was sexually assaulted multiple times. Then he left her tied up and watching TV, as if she was watching TV, while he cleaned up the crime scene, even wiping off the bed sheets and putting Sylvina's body in the trunk of the car with Carol. He was quoted on the tape as saying, It felt like I was in control for the first time in my life. Stainer wrapped Julie in a pink blanket, put her in the rental car, and drove off aimlessly. He had no destination in mind. He told investigators that along the way, he came to like Julie, who told Stainer that her name was actually Sarah. When they got to Lake Don Pedro, he parked, carried her up the trail, and placed her on the ground. She was still bound by tape. He assaulted her again, and then he fanned out her hair on the ground beneath her head and told her that he loved her. Then he slit her throat. He said he did it as quickly as possible because he didn't want her to suffer. Then he left her body under the brush and drove off with the bodies of Carol and Sylvina still in the trunk. He drove to the community of Longbarn where he left the vehicle hidden in the trees off the side of the road where it was eventually found. But he returned two days later with a can of gasoline. After scratching, we have Sarah on the hood of the car with a pocket knife, he lit the car on fire and fled. As for Joey Armstrong, Stainer admitted that he saw her packing up her truck and was ready to kill again. During her attack, Joey struggled and created enough resistance that Stainer was forced to quickly dispose of her beheaded body in a nearby stream and flee. Thrown off his plans, Stainer left behind her body and a crime scene loaded with clues, which included shoe prints, tire prints, trace evidence inside her cabin, and fingerprints on her truck. Ultimately, from Stainer's confession, authorities also obtained two knives, duct tape, the blanket in which he wrapped Julie, and the clothing he wore during his crimes. 
Agents interviewed Stainer for six hours, where he eventually said Agent Reinick was the reason he was confessing. After confessing, Agent Reinick promised to help contact Stainer's loved ones. Reinick was quoted as saying, I drove through the night to see them, and I spent several hours with them and tried to prepare them for the reality that they would be losing their second son. The arrest was a surprise twist in the five-month investigation. According to an LA Times article by Mark Arax, Dave Lesher, and Eric Bailey, prior to Stainer's confession, the FBI officials had previously assured the public that the suspects responsible for killing Carol and the two girls were behind bars on other charges. Their investigative efforts were focused on a small band of local methamphetamine users who had been convicted of sex crimes. But federal authorities did concede that the supposed suspects made conflicting statements and none had divulged the locations of the killings or a motive. The FBI's confidence in Larwick and Dykes as suspects stemmed in part from the crime lab report that showed that fibers found on or near Julie's corpse were microscopically consistent with those found in the vehicles that Dykes suggested they search. Remember, this was Dykes' vehicle, his half-brother Larwick's Corvette, and then another unnamed vehicle. After Stainer confessed to everything, it was understood that the crime lab either botched things or the fiber match was an incredible coincidence. The FBI had no comment. According to a September 13, 2000 article by CBS News, Stainer pleaded guilty in the federal case for the murder of Joey Armstrong in exchange for life in prison. The plea deal also guaranteed that he would never be able to tell his story. The plea required that he take his story to his grave to spare the family from any additional media attention. This agreement stated, quote, After the entry of judgment in this case, until his death, he will not speak to anyone, write to anyone, or communicate to anyone about the death of Joey Ruth Armstrong, end quote. The only exception was any testimony or communication with his lawyer regarding his state or federal murder cases. In order to guarantee that he never profited from his story, Stainer agreed to a $10 million restitution order to go to a fund in Joey Armstrong's name. He also agreed to meet with the Armstrong family if they requested a meeting. Kath, I love the way they set up this plea agreement because, as you and I discussed in a prior episode, and I can't remember which one, prohibiting a prisoner from writing a book and all that kind of stuff is really a violation of First Amendment rights. So this plea agreement, that portion might not be held up. However, the judge made a restitution order, which basically is enforced as though it's a judgment against the criminal, meaning if he ever got money or proceeds, the family could immediately do judgment enforcement proceedings and take it from him. That was smart. Yeah, smart that they did a restitution order. Because Joey Armstrong was murdered in a national park, that's federal land, and her case was a federal case. Carol, Julie, and Sylvina were murdered in El Portal, which was state land. And so they essentially have a state case and therefore a separate trial. Because of his plea agreement on Joey's case, he was already going to be in prison for the rest of his life. However, the state prosecutors were saying, that's not good enough. We want the death penalty. So his state case for the three murders went to trial. Trial began in mid-July 2002 in Santa Clara County. The venue was changed from Mariposa County due to the notoriety. 
And as a side note, Santa Clara County was paid $4 million by Mariposa County for the cost of the trial. And I'm sure it included everything, like overtime for deputies, et cetera, et cetera. Carrie Stainer pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. When you do that, you have the sanity portion of the trial first, and the jury decides whether or not you were sane or not at the time of the killings. In California, if somebody is claiming that they are legally insane, it requires that the person be incapable of understanding the nature of the act or knowing the nature of the act or being able to distinguish between right and wrong by reason of a mental disease or defect. So the prosecution's expert testified that Stainer had thoughts and fantasies that consumed him that preceded his brother Stephen's kidnapping. They also said, yes, Stainer grew up in an environment rife with dysfunction and twisted sexuality. And by the way, Kath, with respect to his brother's kidnapping, the prosecution acknowledged that Stainer felt that he was directly responsible for Stephen's kidnapping because as a child, he had obsessive thoughts about holding a neighbor girl captive against her will. And he thought somehow his bad thoughts were responsible for Stephen getting kidnapped. Nonetheless, the prosecution said that Carrie Stainer knew what he was doing when he committed the murders. And he. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at hero.co. Did not fit within the legal definition of insanity at the time. According to a defense psychiatrist, Stainer's family was rife with mental illness and sexual abuse going back five generations. And Kath, sadly, six months after Stephen was kidnapped, Carrie Stainer, who was 11 years old at the time, was molested by his uncle, who, by the way, was killed later on and his murder was never solved. So, of course, some people speculate that it was actually Stainer. That an 11-year-old did it? Years later. Oh, it was years later. Yeah. I don't know how many years later, but years later. The defense experts said that Stainer had obsessive compulsive disorder, mild autism, and paraphilia. My understanding is that paraphilia is when you are sexually aroused by objects rather than human beings. Like something phallic, like the Washington Monument? I don't even think it's that obvious. Stainer also began pulling his hair out at the age of three and was still doing it in high school, which, of course, people made fun of him for. And he always had to wear a hat. And, you know, he was a really handsome guy. He was a handsome kid. There's a name for the hair pulling. I can't remember what it's called. There's an actual psychological diagnosis. But anyway, he had that. According to the psychiatrist's report, Stainer's father was ordered into therapy for molesting his own daughters. In addition to the unwanted advances of the father, one of his sisters said that Stainer was peeping on her and inappropriately touching her when she was 10. One relative described child sexual abuse as like a family sickness because it had been going on for so many generations. Ultimately, because of the way Stainer admitted to manipulating Carol into opening the motel room door, the jury found Stainer sane. They heard his confession tape during the guilt phase and convicted him of three counts of first-degree murder with the special circumstances of kidnapping and sexual assault. 
More testimony by the Stainer family was admitted in during the penalty phase of the trial in an attempt to spare him from the death penalty. On October 9, 2002, the same jury that heard the guilt and penalty phases recommended death, a penalty the judge formally accepted and imposed two months later. However, because there's a moratorium on the death penalty in California, Stainer remains in San Quentin State Prison on death row. Thanks for listening. Rate us, review us, Mm -hmm. and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Only five stars are allowed. Remember that.